0: Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott.
1: Hello to everybody. Welcome to the program. Today I address the Christian church's critical problem. How does the Christian church develop the church's population to use the Bible's mandates to make decisions and guide their affairs? In other words, to think biblically. The fact of the matter is that the 2022 Barna survey has shown that only about 6% of the church's members 51% 51% of Christian pastors and only 2% of parents of teenagers in the church have a biblical worldview. So it is very rare to find individuals with a biblical worldview. And how can we teach the next generation to think biblically if parents of teenagers don't have a biblical worldview themselves? Luke chapter 6 verse 40 speaks to this issue. It affirms a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. We are in the process of raising the next generation, and unless we are purposeful about teaching them a biblical worldview and they will get their worldview from another source. From kindergarten through the end of secondary school, the students spend 14,000 instructional hours in school, and they are being given a worldview without them knowing it. It is surprising that a lot of parents think that all they need to do to combat them in coke a strange worldview is to ask, what did you learn today? Well, you know the answer to that question, don't you? The answer comes back, oh, nothing. So that's the first problem, communication. The second problem is that the students don't realize that they are being taught a worldview that is contrary to the biblical worldview. So they can't tell you what they are being taught because they are completely unaware that their worldview is being shaped and that it is being shaped intentionally and strategically by the political left in our nation. The students envision that what they are learning in school is the right way to think because they do not know there is a different way to think. Jesus Christ gave the Christian church its commission to go into all the world and make disciples and teach them to observe all that he commanded. That's found in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. The Barna survey implies that the Christian church is failing in its commission. It is not making disciples, neither in the adult population, Nor in the youth of the church. In a real sense, the home is part of the mission field for Christian parents. This is further exacerbated by the fact that 80% of the church's youth between the ages of 18 to 29 are abandoning the church in the first year after they leave home. Parents have a duty to combat this. In this regard, Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4, has instructions to the children of the home, the Christian parents, and especially the fathers. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. These two words, discipline and instruction, that Paul uses here in the Greek is paideia, chi, nuthesia. The first word and third word are almost synonymous in meaning. The first means child training, chastening, or to correct by discipline. It stresses to train by act. The third word is to put in mind, admonish, give warning. It is training by word. Vine's Expository Dictionary says that the difference between admonish and teach is that the former has mainly in view the things that are wrong and call for warning. The latter has to do with the impartation of positive truth. Admonition differs from remonstrance. The former is warning based on instruction. The latter may be little more than a strong protest. In the church and in society, things have changed dramatically since about the middle of the 20th century. Those that were born then or later likely will not recognize the change. The received wisdom of that bygone time was that religion was on the way out. In their 1985 book, The Future of Religion, secularization, revival, and cult formation, William S. Bainbridge and Rodney Stark say, the most illustrious figures in sociology, anthropology, and psychology unanimously viewed that they would live to see the dawn of a new era in which, to paraphrase Sigmund Freud, the infantile illusions of religion would be outgrown. Time magazine joined the bandwagon with the April 8th, 1966 issue with the red on black gut-punched question on the cover asking, is God dead? Half a century later, it remained one of the most iconic time covers ever produced. Those three words on the Time magazine cover reveals that what has stirred debate formally among a few radical theologians had suddenly captured the imaginations and fears of the entire nation. These three words also captured a moment in time. The question had been brewing for some time prior to the time issue in 1966. Near the end of the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche started his God is Dead movement. William Hamilton of Colgate Divinity School and Thomas Altizer of Emory University published a book of essays on the topic, Radical Theology and the Death of God, right around when the Times story came out. After years of battling the evils of Adolf Hitler's Nazism and the ferocity of the Japanese Army in World War II, American Christians watched as godless communism threw its sinister curtain around several nations in the world. The Civil Rights Movement was another real-world event that made the question apt In 1966, it wasn't easy to believe that a loving, powerful God was actively steering the lives of man. This problem of evil was on the minds of lots of people, and it still remains on the minds of many. And it is used as an excuse not to believe in the God of the Bible. And at home, Martin Luther King Jr. was making his I have a dream speech in Washington, D.C. In that speech, King said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Looking back, there is another fact in the story that stands out even more as an artifact of the time. Survey results showed then that 97% of Americans believed in God. The number of God's devotees had, has been shrinking ever since. In 2014, the Pew poll found that only 63% of Americans believed in God. Gallup poll numbers were roughly the same. Among those concerned with the state of religion in America today, one of the most pressing topics is the rise of nuns, the increasing number of people who identify as spiritual but claim no religion of their own. And yet, even as Americans' belief in God declines, religion retains a powerful hold. Indeed, on December the 26th, 1969, Time magazine had another cover story asking, Is God coming back to life? Then in an article on April the 7th, 1980, Time marveled, In a quiet revolution in thought and argument that hardly anybody could have foreseen only two decades ago, God is making a comeback. Most intriguingly, this is happening not among theologians or ordinary believers, but in the crisp intellectual circles of academic philosophers where the consensus had long banished the Almighty from fruitful discourse. According to this article, The noted American philosopher Roderick Chisholm speculated that the reason atheism was so influential in the previous generation is that the brightest philosophers were atheists. But today, he observes many of the brightest philosophers are theists whose work is in defense of that belief Most Americans, and in particular the new atheists, are blissfully ignorant of this ongoing revolution in Anglo-American philosophy. This is witnessed by the 2009 book, The Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, edited by William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland. The new atheists are generally out of touch with cutting-edge work in this field. A generation after the 1966 Time cover story, Freud's prophetic vision can no longer be sustained. In the 2010 book, Why God Won't Go Away, the theologian and scientist Alistair McGrath writes, I can hardly fail to point out that the common Christian understanding of human nature over the last 2,000 years is that we possess and are meant to possess a homing instinct for God. To use an image from the Renaissance poet Francis Quayle's comment, our soul is like an iron needle drawn to the magnetic pole of God. God can no more be eliminated from human life than our yearning for justice or our deep desire to make this world a better place. We have a homing instinct precisely because there's a home for us to return to. That's one of the great themes of the New Testament. We are created with an inbuilt yearning for God. Famously expressed in the prayer of Augustine of Hippo, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. One of the reasons Christianity is true in its ability to make sense of our experience. I will return to this topic in the next episode of this program. Allow me to close by reminding you to exercise daily. Walk with God.
0: Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida.